how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Genesis Part 4, Eden to Babel. When God finished creating our world, he said, that's very good. And that included people. But who would say it's a very good world now? Very few would claim that. Something is out of order. Now, what went wrong and when did it go wrong? And Genesis 3 gives us an answer to that question. All three relationships between human beings and God, between human beings and nature, between human beings and each other, they've all gone wrong, sadly wrong. Which one went wrong first? It seems almost as if our world is cursed rather than blessed. We become alienated. Let's look at three facts of our existence. Fact number one, birth is painful. Fact number two, life is hard. Fact number three, death is certain. Why? Why is birth painful? Why is life hard? Why is death certain? Well, again, Genesis 3 gives us the answer. Philosophy gives us many different answers. Some philosophers say there must be a bad God as well as, well as a good one. More frequently, they say that the good God made a bad job of it and thus they try and find some explanation for the origin of evil. Genesis 3 gives us four vital insights into this problem. Number one, evil wasn't always in the world. Number two, it didn't start with human beings. Number three, it isn't something physical, something moral. Some philosophers have said that it's the material part of the universe that is the source of evil. Or in personal terms, it's your body that is the source of temptation. That is not the Bible answer. The fourth insight is that evil doesn't exist. There are only evil people. Evil is not a thing that exists on its own. It's an adjective rather than a noun. It is persons who become evil. Evil as such doesn't exist. Now, we're dealing in Genesis 3 with a real event in real history and real geography. We're given the place and the time of it. At the dawn of human history, a gigantic moral catastrophe took place. This is not fable or myth, but we do have here a reptile, more a lizard than a snake because it had legs and most of the Sunday school pictures I've seen were totally wrong. They just had a snake holding an apple in its mouth or something. This was a lizard, but a talking lizard. Can we credit that? Well, there are three possibilities. One is that it was the devil in disguise and he's a master at disguise. Another is that God enabled an animal to talk. Another is that the animal was possessed by an evil spirit. Now, when Jesus sent the 2,000 pigs down the Gadarene cliff, demons had entered the pigs. And it's perfectly possible for Satan to take over an animal and therefore to disguise himself as one of God's own creatures, which would tend to fool Adam and Eve because Satan was putting himself below them, as it were. And uh, he was the most subtle creature. 
He was, in fact, a fallen angel. There are angels. Evolutionists seem to have problems with angels as to where they came from, but angels are just as real, more real than human beings. They're more intelligent than we are, they're stronger than we are. And I've already explained the trees. Significant that Satan went for Eve because women are, generally speaking, more trusting than men. Men are terribly distrustful creatures, but women are more trusting and therefore more easily misled and confused. But more important, Satan was subverting God's order and treating Eve as if she was the head of the house. I am ashamed, however, of my gender because Adam actually was standing by her side and never opened his mouth once. And we need to say that very strongly. So often on TV when a couple are interviewed after some personal tragedy, the husband just sits there with his mouth shut and makes his wife do all the talking. He should be protecting her. And Adam should have been arguing with Satan because Eve had not heard God's words. Adam heard them and he should have told Satan he was misquoting the Word of God. There are three misquotations of the Word of God you can make. One is to add something to them, to the Word of God. Another is to take something away and the third is to change what's there. And in fact, if you read carefully, Satan did all three to God's commandment. Satan knows his Bible very well, but he can misquote it as well and he commits all three errors which I'm afraid are not unknown among preachers either, to add to God's Word or to take away from it or to change it in any way is to tamper with something that is changeless. Well, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices and we know how he got hold of Eve and it's how he'll get hold of us. He does it in three steps. He gets you to doubt with the mind, to desire with the heart and then to disobey with the will. That is always his strategy. Gets you to think about something wrong first, usually by misinterpreting God's Word, and then he gets you to want it in your heart, to desire it, and after he's got your mind thinking about it and your heart wanting it, you are an accident waiting to happen, and when the circumstances are right, you will disobey with your will. That's how he got hold of Eve and we should have learned from this. Now we see a very different side to God's character that has never come out yet. It's the side of God's character that judges sin. It's the holy side of his character. That hasn't been touched on in Genesis 1 and 2, but now it comes out clearly. God hates sin and he must deal with it. If he's really a good God, then he cannot let people get away with badness. That's the message of Genesis 3. Did you notice in the paraphrase I read to you that his punishments were in poetry? I hope you've got a Bible that tells you when God's Word is poetry and when it's prose. When it's prose, it looks like a newspaper column written from side to side like that, but when it's uh, poetry, you find lots of space and shorter lines. When God speaks in prose, he is communicating his thoughts from his mind to your mind. But when he uh, is poetic, he is communicating his feelings from his heart to yours. One verse in Genesis 1 is in poetry and one verse in Genesis 2 is in poetry and both are about sex. Isn't that amazing? The first two love songs 
God becomes poetic when he considers male and female in Genesis 1, and Adam becomes poetic when he catches sight of this beautiful naked girl when he wakes up from the first surgery under anaesthetic. And uh, do you know what Adam actually said? I'll translate the Hebrew properly. He said, wow, <laughs> this is it, he said, this is it. He wasn't so keen a few weeks later when he said, it was that woman you gave me. <laughs> How we change. But those two little poems in one and two are God's delight and man's delight in sexuality. But in Genesis 3, the poems reveal quite another emotion in God, anger, frustration, irritation, or in theological terms, the wrath of God. And God feels so deeply that Eden has been ruined. It's all spoiled. And God knew what it would lead to as well. From chapters 4 to 11, we see the results of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is usually referred to as the fall, when man fell from that beautiful state. Just imagine it hadn't happened. Just imagine that Adam hadn't tried to blame Eve or even God. It was that woman you gave me. He's trying to pass the buck. Supposing Adam had responded to God's question, I've done wrong and I confess it, and God had forgiven it on the spot history might have been terribly different. See, when God asked Adam questions, where are you? God knew where Adam was perfectly well. This is a question at the beginning of a trial. Do you plead innocent or guilty? That's what God is really asking. And Eve, where have you got to? What have you been up to? He is wanting confession because when God gets confession, he forgives. That's what he was after. But poor old Adam hiding in the bushes said, I didn't have any Sunday clothes. It's pathetic. And have you ever seen the shape of a fig leaf? I'll draw it for you. That's the shape of a fig leaf. Can you imagine trying to hide yourself by sewing those together? I mean, it was pathetic, tragic. But that fall deserved punishment and it got it and Adam was punished in relation to his work and Eve in relation to the family. That's very significant. And the reptile became a snake. I once went into a garage full of huge snakes. It was a man's hobby. I can't understand that hobby, but I went in and he picked up a gigantic boa constrictor or something and he said, I'll show you something. And he lifted the scales of the body up about two-thirds of the way back and he lifted the scales and underneath the scales was the tiniest leg. He said, did you know every snake has legs? They're not long enough to touch the ground, so it has to slither on its belly. I said, I never knew that. But guess what I was thinking about when he said it. <laughs> so God shut them off from life. And now in chapters 4 to 11, the effects are like a stone thrown into a pond and the ripples just go on spreading out, covering an increasing part of time and space. They go down through the generations and out through to nations. Moral pollution contaminates all culture and progress from now on, all arts and sciences from now on, all social and political life from now on. Now, 4 to 11 in Genesis cover many, many centuries, but God picks out 
those things that most affected him and his purpose. See, God has feelings. That comes out very strongly now. And he can be happy and he can be sad. He can be angry, he can be grieved. We're going to study his emotions now, his emotional reaction to what's happening down there on earth. And the three events which mattered most to him over the next many centuries were Cain and the mass weapons of destruction that came from Cain's line, second, Noah and his ark, and third, Nimrod and his tower. And these three events cover many, many centuries of human history, but these were the three things most significant to God and what he was going to do with our fallen human race. Let's take Cain first. Somebody has pointed out that the sin of the first man caused the second man to kill the third man. This is Adam's own family and his eldest son kills the middle one. And for the same reason as they killed Jesus centuries later, envy. Envy was responsible for the first murder in history and the worst murder in history. It's a horrible thing and yet if we're honest, we've all experienced it in some way or another. Envy of someone else. Cain and Abel. Cain means gotten because Eve said, I gotten him from the Lord, so he was called gotten. Abel was called breath or vapour. Was he an asthmatic or was he a, a sort of weak kind of person? Could be. Third child. God favoured the younger child of the two, Cain and Abel. God often favoured the younger, as we're going to see in the next talk, because he didn't want anybody ever to think they had a natural right to his gifts and inheritance. So God usually chose a younger person, but that wasn't why he chose to accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. The reason why was that Abel had learned from his parents that the only sacrifice worthy of God and worthy of sinners to offer is a blood sacrifice, the result of a life taken in death. You see, when God had covered the sin and shame of his parents, Abel knew that God had killed animals to do so. A naughty streak in me likes pointing out that it was God who made the first fur coat, but it was God who actually killed some animals and clothed Adam and Eve. Blood was shed so that their shame could be covered. That's a principle that begins right there and goes all the way through to Calvary. Abel had learned that, so when Abel came to worship God, he brought an animal sacrifice. Cain simply brought fruit, vegetables, held a little harvest festival. And it says, God had respect to Abel and his sacrifice, which made Cain mad. And God warned Cain, now be very careful, you're in a very precarious position, sin is crouching at your door and is just waiting to pounce in and get you, but Cain didn't listen and you know the rest of the story. He deceived his brother, led him away from the home on a false pretext, then murdered him, buried him and then totally disowned him and said he had nothing to do with it. How one sin leads to another. There's a pattern emerging here and that is that bad people hate good people. 
and that the ungodly are envious of the godly. And this is going to cause a division that goes all the way through the rest of human history. It's a strange fact. It was Plato who said, if ever a perfectly good man lives on earth, he will be crucified. That was said centuries before Jesus came. We live in a fallen world where goodness is hated, where people say, well, no one's perfect and excuse the evil in themselves. And anyone who presents a challenge to their con conscience is hated. And Jesus told us, the world hated me, it's going to hate you if you live right. And that is a fact, that hatred of the good on the part of the evil is a fact of human history. We could say that Abel was the first martyr for righteousness' sake. In fact, that's not just me saying it, Jesus said it. He said, the blood of the righteous has been spilled from Abel, right through to Zechariah and, of course, signifying that he would follow. Now, Cain produced an ungodly line of people and it's very interesting what is attached to that line. Music comes out of that line. Metallurgy comes out of that line and the first use of forging metal was to make weapons of mass destruction which enabled unlimited revenge and terrorism to begin. And the first use of weapons for, was for terrorist activities from Cain's line. Urbanization came from Cain's line. It was Cain's line that began to build the cities. Now what does a city do? It concentrates sinners in one place and therefore it concentrates sin in one place. And cities become more sinful than the countryside because of this concentration. So you can see that all the things we call human progress are tainted by Cain. The mark of Cain is on them and uh, that's the biblical interpretation of civilization. that however wonderful our discoveries, however much progress we make, it's always got that taint of killing in it. The tragedy is that I suppose almost every single invention of man has been used for killing and some of them have been used to kill before they've been used for healthy purposes. I think of the splitting of the atom as just one example. Polygamy came through Cain's line. Up till that point, one man and one woman were married for life. But through Cain's line, many wives came in. And we know that even Abraham and uh, Jacob and David were polygamous. It all goes back to Cain. But at the same time, there was a third brother, a third son of Adam and Eve, Seth. And with him you see another line, a godly line, and it says that from the line of Seth, men began to call on the name of the God always. So you see there are two lines developing here and they run right through human history and will right to the end until the day comes when those two lines are separated forever. But we live in a world in which there's a line of Cain and a line of Seth and you choose which line you belong to and which kind of life you live. 
That was the first major event. And God said he was Abel's keeper. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And God said, I am, and his blood is crying out to me. Every murder involves God. He is concerned. It's his family. Interesting. Now the next major event is Noah's Ark. The story is so well known, not only from inside the Bible, but there are many, many folklore tales of a universal flood to be found in many different cultures. There's a racial memory somewhere of this event which has popped up in all kinds of places, but here we have the origin of those tales. It's been questioned whether it is real, and I think it is an open question as to whether the flood was right round the globe or covering the then known world that whole Middle Eastern basin later called Mesopotamia, where the huge plain through which the Tigris and the Euphrates flow is really the scene of all these early stories. Many years ago, an Englishman called Leonard Woolley, whom you see standing up here, telegraphed the Times in London, we have found the flood. They had found about 18 feet of silt under the clay and sand of the Mesopotamian basin, and he claimed they had found the flood. Well, they had found a flood, and certainly there have been more than one such devastating flood over that whole area, and they've found more remains since. Whether they've found the flood, I think it's an open question still, and I don't know if you've seen recent TV programs about the search for Noah's Ark itself, and indeed this very year there is a final expedition with Russian approval to go and study what looks like the remains of a large boat. Well, whether it is or not remains to be seen. The interest in the Bible is not so much in the material side of this story as in the moral side. That is the crucial thing. Why did it happen? The answer is appalling. It's because God regretted that he made human beings. I think that's the saddest verse in the Bible. I've heard parents say about children, we wish you'd never had them. That's an awful thing. And God says, why did I put human beings on that earth? It was a beautiful place. Why did I go and ruin it by making men? And this communicates his feelings very much, his heart, and he resolved to have done with us, to wash them out of his hair. It's uh, what had happened to cause such a crisis in God's emotions. Well, we've only part of the story in the book of Genesis. We've got more of it in a book written between the Old and New Testament in what's known as the Apocrypha, the book of Enoch. And since that book is quoted in the New Testament as truth by Jude and Peter, then we can take it that that book is accurate, though it's not part of the Word of God, but it is a record of history. And that book actually tells us that between two and three hundred angels in the area of Mount Hermon sent to look after God's people actually fell in love with women, had sex with them, seduced them, and impregnated them 
so that they produced a horrible hybrid somewhere between men and angels, not in God's order. Now that is mentioned in Genesis 6, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and it called the hybrid offspring Nephilim, sometimes translated giants in English versions. We don't know what it means, it's just a, a newfangled term for a newfangled sort of creature. Strange that Hollywood is now catching up with this and producing films like Rosemary's Baby, which imagines Satan impregnating a girl. It's a kind of horrible travesty of the virgin birth where the Holy Spirit came on Mary. Well, it's a strange and weird story, but it's interesting that that horrible intercourse between angels and men, and incidentally, uh, intercourse between humans and animals is just as uh, much an abomination to God as disgusting to Him. It's not what He intended. But it's interesting that that horrible combination was the beginning of occultism because those angels taught those women witchcraft and we can trace occultism back to this horrible event. And it says that the immediate effect of this uh, perverted sex was that violence filled the whole earth because the one thing leads to the other. It's treating people as objects, not as persons. And violence, it says, filled the earth. And finally it reached a stage where it says God saw that every imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. What a statement. Every only continually. Couldn't be more strongly expressed. And these were people made in God's image. Can you imagine how he felt? And he said, that's it. That's enough. But being God, he's very patient. <coughs> and uh, he gave them warning, full warning. He got hold of that man called Enoch, who was the first prophet ever to give a message from God to the human race. And the message was God is coming to judge and he's going to deal with all ungodliness. And Enoch at the age of 65 had a child, a boy, and God gave him the name for the boy and the boy was to be called, When He Dies It Will Happen. What an extraordinary name for a boy. Can you imagine the teacher at school, what's your name little boy? When he dies it'll happen. <laughs> and have you done your homework when he dies it'll happen? Only of course when he dies it will happen was not in English, it was in the Semitic language. Do you know what it is in the Semitic? Methuselah. Methuselah. And Enoch knew that when his son died, God would judge the world. And that's why Methuselah lived longer than anybody else, because God is very patient. Isn't that amazing? 969 years later, Methuselah died. And the day he died, it began to rain. Heavy rain, floods. And Enoch's great-grandson, Methuselah's grandson, was a boy called Noah. And he and his three sons had spent 12 months building a huge covered raft according to God's specifications. You know the story. That's a, a photograph taken from a film called In the Beginning, the Bible. And that's Charlton Heston playing Noah. And when he played his little pipe and walked to the ark, all these animals followed him. 
It's the most amazing thing. Uh, they, the first take, these animals just followed him into the ark. You'll see that in the film if ever you see it. But what if I put down this here? Do you recognise that boat? One of the best ocean-going liners today. It's the SS Canberra. When I was at university back in 1950, I had a friend, John, and while I studied uh, science, he studied marine architecture or ship design. And uh, that's his job. And it's the first ship in history ever to be modelled on the proportions of Noah's Ark. Because he argued that God, who knew the stresses and strains of ocean waves, would know the perfect proportions of beam to length. So he designed it on that proportion and it's been one of the best ships that's ever been built. I just throw that in because, you know, it's worth taking the Bible, it's true. <laughs> it might just help you in your business. Well, I've told you what happened before the flood, except that there was one family, just one family, a preacher and his three boys and three daughters-in-law and his wife, and they both preached and practiced righteousness. They lived it, they spoke it, and they were laughed at. What are you building a ship here for? Miles from any sea. Well, the sea's coming to the ship, said Noah. Go on, pull the other one. And they laughed at him. But eight people got saved out of that flood. Now, after the flood, God promised never to do it again as long as the earth remained. He also made a covenant, a sacred promise, with the whole human race that he would not only never again destroy the human race, but he would support the human race by providing enough food, seeing that summer and winter and springtime and harvest came regularly. That's a promise God has made and God put a rainbow in the sky. The reason was that the two things we need for life on earth are light and water. And when they come together, you see the rainbow. That is not a reminder to us of God's promise. God said, that's a reminder to me of my promise to you. A bit like God's wedding ring in the sky, a reminder of his promise to be faithful. And he's kept that promise, even though people want him to do it again. Lord, when are you going to destroy all the evil people on the world so we can, we can enjoy it? Have you ever heard people talk like that? You know, as if God should come and destroy everybody else, as if we're innocent. We always think that, don't we? But that rainbow is a reminder. Incidentally, when he made that promise, he also demanded something of us, and that was to treat human life as sacred and therefore to punish murder with execution. That was one of the things he laid down. He said, I'll keep the human race alive, I'll send you harvest time every year, and believe it or not, there is always, every year, enough food in the world to feed the population. In fact, in the year of the Ethiopian and Sudan famine a few years ago, there was 13% more corn in the world than we needed. It's not his fault our fault. We're just too selfish. So he's kept his promise, but he said, now you are to regard life as sacred, so sacred that if anyone takes it, his life must be taken. I believe that capital punishment was abolished in this country because we'd stopped treating life as sacred. And I said, the next thing will be abortion, and it was. 
Well, God made that covenant with the whole human race. The next incident that affected God deeply was Babel. Babel. And a man called Nimrod, a mighty hunter, but who hunted people as well as animals. A man who went to war, an aggressor. And he had ambitions, ambitions for humanity, to build a tower that reached even into God's sphere of heaven to challenge heaven, to build, it says, a name for himself, a reputation. We know roughly what the towers looked like in those days. They were called ziggurats. There's one there. I'll show you another picture later of one. Uh, great big brick towers, not stone because there's no stone in that part of the world, just clay, but great big towers with staircases going up and up and up. On the top there were usually signs of astrology, but it wasn't so much uh, worshipping stars that Nimrod built a tower for, it was more to express his own power and grandeur. I found this in Time magazine recently. The race is on to build the tallest building in the world right now. Here's the Empire State Building. It's dwarfed by what is being planned and what is being built. Uh, here's the uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia um, towers, the Twin Towers. They're almost completed. But here in Japan, would you believe it, in Tokyo, they're going to build the Millennium Tower, which is 800 metres high. That's over half a mile high. In an earthquake zone. You, you, just, you just really wonder about man's pride and his impudence and his sheer confidence, saying, we can build a taller tower than anybody else. You can come and look at them afterwards closely if you wish. Um, there's the Sears Tower in Chicago, but Chicago is already planning a kilometre-high building, and we go on in human pride building these monuments to ourselves and sheer godlessness behind them. Well. The Tower of Babel offended God very deeply and he said, if I let them go on building for themselves like this, there's no telling where it'll end. And that's when God gave the gift of tongues for the first time and he actually gave them different languages so that they were confused and they couldn't understand each other and from then on humanity split. Now, as we read these stories, and I'm not here to expound them all, you're going to read them for yourself, I'm just giving you keys to unlock. You can see how the fall of Adam has just spread out and is affecting so many areas of life, and still is, and still there is human pride. We can do all this without God. We are almighty. We see two things through these chapters. We see on the one hand God's justice. He always deals with the situation. He always punishes. He's got to if he's a good God. He's a just God. He's a fair God. He punished Adam and Eve. He punished Cain. He became a homeless wanderer, a displaced person, vulnerable, defenceless, afraid of being killed. He punished the generation of Enoch. Not Enoch himself, but the generation. And we need to remember that God could at any time wipe out the human race and one day, one day at the end of the world he will. 
because Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Just once more, God's anger will boil over. So we see his justice at Babel as well. But alongside his justice, you see his mercy. That's the amazing thing. Even with Adam and Eve, he made them clothing to hide their shame. Even with Cain, he put a mark on his forehead so that he wouldn't be killed. And above all, he had this holy line of Seth running all the way through these chapters. There were this, these godly people, Noah and his family were among them, and they called on the name of the Lord, and through them, God was going to save the world. So we see the justice and the mercy of God alongside, but there's a conflict between them. How should God react when his people rebel against him? Injustice or mercy? That conflict goes all the way through the Old Testament. It's only resolved at the cross. There's a hymn about beneath the cross of Jesus, O fain and happy shelter, I fain would take my stand. And there's a line where heaven's just, justice and heaven's mercy meet. That's when it was resolved. Well, I must close, but I'm going to close in a rather interesting way. Among the people scattered at Babel, were a group who climbed over the mountains to the east and went on over mountain range after mountain range and settled when they met the sea. They became the great nation of China. The Chinese culture goes right back to that day and they left before the alphabet had replaced the picture language of ancient Egypt, the cuneiform. All languages were pictorial, right up to Babel. And the language they took to China, they put down in picture form. And here is the amazing thing. In the Chinese language, you can reconstruct the whole story from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 from the pictures in their language. And in fact, missionaries can go to China and say, the first 11 chapters of the Bible are in your language you took the memory of all those events from Babel. And we've come to tell you the rest of the story. There was someone in China who told me this. Their word for create is made up of the pictures for mud, life or motion, and someone walking. That's their word for creation. Their word for devil is made up of a person, a man or a son, a picture of a garden, which is like that. Their picture for secret, so the devil is a secret person in the garden. Their word for tempter is made up of the word for devil plus two trees and the word, a picture for cover. Their word for boat is made up of container, mouth and eight. So a boat in the Chinese language is a container for eight people. And so we could go on you can reconstruct the whole of Genesis 1 to 11 from the picture language of China. And when they first went, they believed only in one God, the maker of heaven and earth. It's only after Confucius and Buddha that they got into idolatry. So the Chinese language is an independent confirmation from outside the Bible that these things happened and were taken in the memory of people scattered at Babel who settled in China. Isn't that fascinating? Well, that's enough for this talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. 
Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.